0: The rest of you can uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, slowly working our way through these many virtues listed in Romans chapter 12. Even without Mel here, are you rejoicing this morning? (laughs) Well you ought to be, because joy is one of the qualities that should be a regular part of the normal Christian life. It immediately follows love on Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. We're told in Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice, Paul says. But just as love can degenerate into hypocrisy, joy can go in the way of false smiles and half-hearted hallelujahs and that kind of plastic thing. So in our text today, Romans 12, 12, we have from Paul an exhortation to rejoice. We've been studying Romans 12, in particular verses 9 and following, as it contains this very full list of Christian virtues, a description, if you will, of the authentic Christian life. Love began the discussion in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, From there we went to uh, moral certitude, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, verse um, 9 there, then brotherly affection and humility in verse 10. Last week we talked about zeal in our service to the Lord in uh, verse 11 of chapter 12, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The problem of, of drifting spiritually or sliding or becoming dull and routine in our service to the Lord Is very real. We are to keep ourselves hot for service, boiling, boiling over, if you will. That's the fervent idea in verse 11. Fervent to do God's work in the world, in whatever capacity we find at hand for us to do. Last time we said we keep that fervor by keeping our relationship with Christ real and vigorous and abiding. We meet with him daily and absorb truths from God through his word. Branches must abide in the vine in order to live, and so we must abide in Christ, or we will be fruitless for the kingdom of God. Now in verse 12, that brings us uh, more for us to consider as we seek to be the men and women. That God wants us to believe to be, and I I I think that there's a link here with verse eleven. In that fervent spirit is one that is joyful. In that fervency, there should be joy. So Paul says right after verse eleven, they're rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. And that second line in verse twelve tells us right away that rejoicing does not depend on ideal circumstances. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. No, rejoicing is a spiritual attitude that comes from faith. So no, circumstances don't have to be perfect. You can be in tribulation and still be rejoicing. And that's hard. That's when you know you're making progress spiritually. But it is possible for one abiding in Christ to rejoice, even in adversity. What does James say? Consider it all joy, right? My brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's something very complete in a spiritual life that can have joy that carries us through endurance of trial. You're doing good when you're getting there. Trials and difficulties actually reveal faith. They sort of strip away all those uh, pretense things that we fall into sometimes because you you're not going to act it anymore because it's too much trial to put on. So the parts of you that are put on or the mere personality and all that is sort of stripped away and trials and troubles force us to choose once and for all what we really believe and to deal with it. And I've seen trials, many horrible trials uh, reveal faith in beautiful ways in people. It's an amazing thing. And curiously, even joy in the midst of great tears. Because God has a way in trials of doing amazing things to assure us that he is there for us. Not that things are always turn out as we would choose, that they would turn out, but he still clearly directs circumstances so that we can thank him and trust him at the end of the day. And fortunately, hopefully, all the way through. When we talk about rejoicing, we're talking about something other than just being in a good mood because moods are d- moody, right? Moods depend on this or that or the other thing. I believe it is possible to rejoice even when you're exhausted, even when you're grieving, even when everything's falling apart around you. When Paul says rejoice in the Lord always, he seems to be someone who could actually put that into service because he can look at Paul's life and see it. You may remember that Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 and Philippi were beaten mercilessly by some Roman guards thrown into a prison, their feet put in stocks. Now that's pain with a little pain and adding pain onto it. I mean, that's just not pleasant. To get beaten, you want to go lay in a bed, right? After, after you get beaten with rod, right? guy's just caning you mercilessly. So they take him down, they put him in a dungeon and put their feet in stocks. In Acts 16.25 it says, About midnight, that very night, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now that's rejoicing in trial. That's rejoicing in pain. There's another text that gives us some insight. If you just turn over a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> Paul is describing the apostolic ministry. It is a remarkable contrast of experiences on the outside versus life on the inside. Life was not easy for the apostles. In verse 4, he says, In everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger... Now, don't rush over that list too quickly when you're reading the Bible. You should camp there for a little while and think about it. What do you complain about? Is it anything like this? These men endured beatings routinely. Tumults, he says, labors, sleeplessness, hunger. That's sort of the bottom end of human happiness, isn't it? From the world scale. But he's not done. verse 6, he says, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying, yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. What's he saying? That faith not only survives these terrible things, beatings and prison and hunger and despair and danger and hostility and malicious lies and poverty, it not only survives, it thrives in all of that. The last words are very telling having nothing yet possessing all things verse 10 there I think we can probably never really know what that means until we get in circumstances like Paul was in and can exercise our faith there but that's what James is thinking of when he says consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials it is somehow possible to be on the very top of things when you're at the very bottom it's an amazing reality Look at verse 10 again of uh, 2 Corinthians 6 there. You can see our word rejoicing. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That right there tells me something really important. We're not talking about this sort of disconnected, holy existence where you sort of float through life without an awareness of the pain and suffering that you're going through and the miseries of this world. You're, You're above all that. You're beyond that. It doesn't really touch you. That's not... Is that what you get from this list of stuff he's going through here? The sorrows are real. The suffering is real. The grief is real. The bruises and the physical agony are real. But in that, sorrowful yet rejoicing. It can be both those things at the same time, he's saying. How? How can he rejoice in sorrow? Well, let's see what we can do to understand that this morning. First of all, you need the proper foundation. And you can just stay right here in this text and look back at verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 6 to see where he began. But in everything, he says, commending ourselves as servants of God. That's sort of the foundation. These men were servants of God, not servants of themselves. That's a really important thing. That's really the key. And although it is insufficiently emphasized in the modern church in the day in which we live, this is not a designation for apostles or for pastors or for missionaries. It's what it means to be a Christian, being a servant of God. That's the very definition. To be a disciple. If you are born from above, you are fit for the kingdom. You are made a servant of God. 1 Peter 2.16 Act as free men. Only do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as what? What? bond slaves of God. That's our place in life. As a servant of God, your perspective on life changes. You exist for a different purpose than you did before. It's all about Him now and comforts and possessions and stuff and even health, while to be enjoyed, if God blesses you with it, that's not really what life is all about. And if God determines that those things flee away from you, That's okay, because we're not here for that. We're here for Him. That's why Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon, God and stuff. Jesus also said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Interesting, isn't it? There's always these curious paradoxes in the Bible. Being on the bottom and being on top. Losing your life, finding your life. Something always is upside down about God's kingdom versus the way we see the world and the way the world sees itself. That's not super saint stuff. That's really basic Christianity. God comes first. You know, I love my family, but I don't love them more than God. I I love my friends, but not more than God. And in my heart, I have as a servant of God already placed my loves at his disposal. In other words, whatever happens to them or anything that I care about, I'm not going to lose my faith over. It. I know that in advance. You say, well, how do you know that? I, uh, well, I'm trusting that I won't, but I've already determined in my heart that those things belong to him and that he can do what he wants with them. That doesn't mean I want to lose any of those things, but that's up to him. If something terrible should happen, heaven forbid, I won't lose my purpose or my existence because I exist for him now will I grieve how could I not sorrowful yet hopeful somehow by grace even rejoicing sorrow and joy can coexist but you need that right foundation which is losing self and embracing Christ for Christ's sake he says, Jesus says, he who has found his life shall lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Paul's physical comfort and health, even his reputation, because he talks always about being slandered, you know, that people are always tearing him down, did not matter to him more than his service to Christ. So he sings in the stocks and in the bonds because even there Christ can be glorified. Um, Being a servant of God simply outweighs all the other considerations. John Piper, in his book Future Grace, briefly recounts the life of Granny Brand, a missionary in India, and he describes her life this way. I just want to read this for you. Evelyn Harris Brand, the mother of Paul Brand, the world-renowned hand surgeon and leprosy specialist, grew up in a well-to-do English family. She had studied at the London Conservatory of Art and dressed in the finest silks but she went with her husband to minister as missionaries in the Kali Malai range of India. After about 10 years, her husband died at age 44, and she came home, quote, a broken woman beaten down by pain and grief, unquote. But after a year's recuperation and against all advice, she returned to India. Her soul was restored and she poured her life into the hill people, nursing the sick, teaching farming, lecturing about guinea worms, rearing orphans, clearing jungle land, pulling teeth, establishing schools, preaching the gospel. She lived in a portable hut eight feet square that could be taken down and moved and erected again. At age 67, she fell and broke her hip. Her son Paul had just come to India as a surgeon he encouraged her to retire. She had already suffered a broken arm, several cracked vertebrae, and recurrent malaria. Paul mounted as many arguments as he could think of to persuade her that 67 years was a good investment in ministry and now it was time to retire. Her response, Paul, you know these mountains. If I leave, who will help the village people? Who will treat their wounds and pull their teeth and teach them about Jesus? When someone comes to take my place, then and only then will I retire. In any case, Why preserve this old body if it's not going to be used where God needs me? That was her final answer, so she worked on. At the age of 95, she died. Following her instructions, villagers buried her in a simple cotton sheet so that her body would return to the soil and nourish new life. Her spirit, too, lives on in a church, a clinic, several schools, and in the faces of thousands of villagers across five mountain ranges of South India. Her son commented that with wrinkles as deep and extensive as any I have ever seen on a human face, she was a beautiful woman. But it was not the beauty of the silk and heirlooms of London high society. For the last 20 years of her life, she refused to have a mirror in her house. She was consumed with ministry, not mirrors. A coworker once remarked that Granny Brand was more alive than any person he had ever met. By giving away life, she found it. This is what happens, paradoxically, when ministry is more important than life let's think about Romans 12 12 again how did Paul say we are to be rejoicing in that text he says rejoicing in hope rejoicing in hope hope is really the distinguishing mark of a true Christian quite in contrast to the world non-christians hope if they do without cause I mean, they hope in just blind providences that somehow things are going to work out. Providences they don't really know and providences they do not understand. They're just counting on things. But we have a sure hope in Christ. We have a rock, an anchor, a firm reality. In the New Testament, a Christian's hope is always presented as a sure thing for those who are committed to Christ. It's not this kind of hope, not, oh, I I hope I get there. It's, I have a hope because I have an assurance It's going to, Be all right. Indeed, earlier in Romans, we talked about hope in Romans chapter 5, speaking of being justified by faith and being made right with God. Paul says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult, rejoice, high five, in hope. We exult in hope of the glory of God, he says. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And Romans 5.5, 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is a hope that does not disappoint because it it is an expression of God's love which the Spirit assures us is ours by the grace of God. Our destiny is to belong to Him forever. And that really begins to explain how we can rejoice in hope. As I see it, there are three basic reasons you can rejoice in hope no matter what the circumstances, if your foundation is that you're a servant of God. And here they are. One, the end is already known, right? Wouldn't you like to know how the war is going to end? Are they going to blow up more of our buildings? Are they going to sneak in an atom bomb in our country? People want to know what the end is going to be. Hey, you know, in the big picture, the big story, your existence, if you're a Christian, you already know the end, right? That's cause for hope. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1.11. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Look, in the end, we receive the inheritance God has promised to us by his grace. We know we will have it because we have the Holy Spirit as a pledge. You know the end. Indeed, the apostle says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So salvation is guaranteed by the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit himself. You can see why that hope does not disappoint, to use Romans 5.5 language. So what does that mean? Well, if you know the end will turn out for your absolute best because God loves you so much, well, then this life is a whole lot easier to let go of, isn't it? You can't get too wigged out about anything that happens down here because it's only temporary, And you know the end. Despair comes when you are tied, bound in your heart to a world that is cursed and is slipping away. The world we live in is like a a car or a washer or dryer. It's designed to fall apart. You know what they call that planned obsolescence stuff. So you have to buy a new one in 10 years. They don't make them to last 40 years. It breaks down. You've got to go buy a new one. Well, you can't buy a new life. Reincarnation isn't true. You only go around once in life. But rather than grab for all the gusto you can, for those of you who remember old beer commercials, you'd better, you better latch on instead to what is eternal. Because even gusto fades away over time. You run out of gusto. Jesus, who knows the beginning from the end, who sees with God's point of view, who entered human life to reveal the Creator's perspective, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because neither moth nor rust destroy there. And thieves don't break in there. And then Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Believe him. Do what he says. And you can rejoice when all is lost down here. Keep your treasure in God's kingdom and the life to come, life in his presence, and your heart will be there too. If your heart is here, at some point you cannot avoid despair. Because you will lose. That's why there's so much unhappiness in the world because people are bound to this world and it's slipping away. It's a cursed earth. It's designed to fall apart. God did it that way. That's the result of sin. We sinned. He cursed. The world is not going to last. It's possible for you to live a rich, full life, be totally happy and die in your sleep. So... But even there, what happens after that? See, That's what matters. Not very many people get to have all that. Most of us are going to face decline and difficulty in trial. But you know, there really is no hope with, without Christ. And those, those pretend hopes, they fail one by one. And the world's deceptions start to be revealed as shallow and, and empty promises one by one. And people become bitter because life doesn't give them what they planned or what they wanted or what they hoped for. They don't get it. We hope because we do get it. We know the end of the story. Okay, second thing. The second reason we can rejoice in hope is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He rules. Nothing happens that he does not ordain either by direct action or by permission. He works all things after the counsel of his will. We just read in Ephesians. So Paul gets arrested preaching God's Word. He's treated unfairly. He gets a wicked, unfair judgment. He's stretched out on the ground and beaten mercilessly with a heavy cane then dragged off to a prison and stuck in shackles. And he sings praises. Why? He knows. He knows that this is not an accident that God permitted it it was a miserable and painful probably permanently damaging thing that happened to him I mean these apostles must have been physical wrecks after all the turmoil and beatings they took constantly but being in God's will knowing that this body is not permanent anyway serving God in the circumstances that he ordains that's real freedom and a cause of rejoicing you see why? Because God arranged all that. God planned for this guy to be a 250-pound muscular cane wielder. See? He knew that. Could God stop those guys from doing that? Of course he could. Now, that kind of attitude does not come automatically. That is a perspective that comes from walking with God. From intimacy with him over a long period of time. But it does come. It really does. It's normal Christianity. Even the worst circumstances can be seen from a heavenly point of view in the light of God's sovereignty. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He has no limits. I'm also reminded of Hannah's beautiful prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. You know, she's rejoicing. I rejoice in thy salvation, she prays, but the sovereignty of God is the dominant content of her prayer. And after she says, I rejoice in my salvation, she says, verse two, uh, 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee. Nor is there any rock like our God. No Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them he keeps the feet of his godly ones but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail it's great stuff she really understood the sovereignty of God in all things that anything could be made upside down by the Lord just by his simple decree powerful stuff so do you recognize God's absolute sovereignty in your circumstances and your life Do so. As a Christian, you will never need to be hopeless. Ever. Rejoice in hope. Persevere in tribulation. Well, the third reason to hope and rejoice in hope is a promise. We can hope because we know the end. We can hope because God is sovereign. And we can hope because there's a promise. What's the promise? Well, remember Romans 8.28? That's a really good one to always go back to. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 God causes all things to work together for good. If you can't rejoice in that, I don't know, what more do you need? Rejoicing in hope is entirely right and fitting and appropriate, even logical, based on these three realities. The end is known, God is sovereign, and we have a promise that our good is His end. So we can and we should rejoice in hope. And we can, by faith, persevere in tribulation. Perseverance is, in fact, one of those distinguishing marks of a true and saving faith. It's what servants of God do. We hold on to the Lord because nothing compares with Him. Well, none of this can happen, like we said at the beginning, without a vital living abiding relationship with Christ and that comes about by prayer and the last words of Romans 12 12 are devoted to prayer prayer. living without prayer is decline there is no spiritual life without prayer there is no growth without prayer there is no advancement without prayer there is no maturity without prayer and we'll look at that next week okay let's pray Father, we thank you for the promise that you've given us. We thank you for the revelation of your sovereign power, your rule over all things. And Lord, we thank you that we can rejoice and hope because you've given us the end of the story, even while we're in the middle of it. For that, we give you great thanksgiving. And Lord, as we gather around your table now, we ask you to bless, to reveal yourself to us in this special way through these signs that Christ told us to practice. We ask you to um, grant us your grace, the grace to hope and rejoice no matter what. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.